welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to OnScript. This is Matt Lynch from Regent College in Vancouver. This is a special episode here that we recorded live at the Little Ryan Prost House in San Antonio. We got to connect with some of you in person, so that was a lot of fun. And we are grateful to IVP for co-sponsoring this event. We're coming into the holiday season here, coming up to Christmas. So don't forget to take those opportunities with family to spread the word about OnScript. There's no better place than around the table uh, to share uh, as you're reflecting on your year and in all the things you learned. Uh, why not bring up OnScript with an unsuspecting family member? I think they'll appreciate it. Okay, without further ado, enjoy this episode. Welcome, everybody. We are here tonight with Dr. Sandra Glan, who wears many hats. She is a marriage partner, a mother, novelist, seminary professor, mentor, advocate, women in antiquities fans, Reader, you read? I know. Uh, <laughs> Maybe not compared to this crowd. Yeah. But, you know. Blogger, what decade is it? Yeah. Author oh. of 20... It's, <laughs> it's back. It's back. It's back. Substacker, author of 20 plus books. I read that and I immediately went to Amazon and I saw you. she really does have 20 plus books. Including the Coffee Cup Bible Study Verses, General Editor of Vindicating the Vixens, uh, Revisiting Sexualized, Vilified, and Marginalized Women of the Bible, and Sanctified Sexuality, Valuing Sex in an Oversexed World. And tonight we are talking about this book, Nobody's Mother, Artemis of the Ephesians and Antiquity and of the New Testament by IVP Aquademic. 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 <laughs> Academic. Welcome, Dr. Sandra Glenn. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. So, Sandra, um, the first thing that we always like to ask, or I always like to ask, is how does this book fit into your journey as a scholar? How did you decide that this was the book that you wanted to write after writing 20-plus other books? This is the book that was in my heart the whole time. It's It's been a probably 20 to 25-year, quarter-of-a-century project, uh, and it's rooted in my story of what in the world does that enigmatic phrase, a woman will be saved through childbearing, mean? Um, I, if you've seen the, the miniseries Shiny Happy People, sort of the Bill Gothard world, that was my world. And I, I embraced it. I'm the fourth of five kids, and I had basically Maria Von Trapp for a mother. And it looked pretty good. It looked like a good gig. And so when my husband and I hit the brick wall of infertility and pregnancy loss that spanned a decade of three years of no success, seven failed adoptions, an ectopic pregnancy, I'm sorry, three failed adoptions, and a top topic and seven pregnancy losses, it was not it was not just a marital, emotional, financial, ethical crisis. It was much more deeply a spiritual crisis of identity because I had no plan B for what it looked like to be a, a woman with some teaching gifts uh, and told that the the only really appropriate place for those to go is in the nuclear family. And that just started not really resonating with, with what other Pauline passages seem to suggest about virginity and the early church and the virgins. And so I just had to figure out what that meant. And it, lurking in the background was Artemis of the Ephesians, because when Paul wrote to Timothy in uh, 1 Timothy 
uh, one three, he, he said, I left you in Ephesus to teach certain people not to teach false doctrine. And we get a really big clue as to what false doctrine was happening in Ephesus in Acts 19, which is looking at magic workers and great as Artemis of the Ephesians. So that is what started it all. And um, that's your story about the book and why you wanted to write it. Why do we need another Paul book on women? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Ouch. What's, no, what's, no, that's a legit what's question. This, what's yeah. this bringing? That? Because I keep reading in commentaries, seeing on the internet, Artemis is a fertility goddess. And Artemis is the exact opposite of a fertility goddess. She is a doula. She delivers babies, but she's a confirmed virgin. And even I think when you get these little phrases in Paul, like don't touch, don't taste, don't marry, we've tended to say, well, you know, it's a proto-Gnosticism. I, I think it's rooted in Artemis. And that maybe provided the perfect seedbed for later Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. But I, it was really, it really started with, we must stop saying that Artemis is a fertility goddess because we sound silly to historians. I mean, that's a great reason to write a book. We all need to stop sounding silly. Yeah, yes. I love you too much to let you sound silly. Yeah. So you, you note the, the historian's task here, and you're, you've said it very vehemently here, Artemis was not these things. Um, mm -hmm. And the problem is, how do you prove a negative? Yeah. Uh, there's all these caricatures floating around about Artemis, right. uh, most of which I didn't know until I read your book. So, um, so how... Because he's an Old Testament person. Yeah, because I'm an Old yeah. Testament person. Okay. <laughs> Um, although you hit the, those few sentences on the Hittites, I was in. I was like, <laughs> what's going to happen next? Um, That's good. So, um, and you, you quoted somebody, I, I couldn't actually find it, uh, but you quoted somebody who said the best way to deal with this problem of proving a negative is just get to know the positive really well. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of titles and a lot of things you could say, but in a nutshell, who was Artemis? So Artemis, I wasn't interested in knowing who is Artemis, actually. I was only interested in knowing who is Artemis of the Ephesians at the time of the earliest Christians. You go to Ephesus and you get from the 7th century BC to the you know, 4th century AD, that's 11 centuries. And that's, can you imagine American history in 11th century? Like that's a lot of different Americas. Um, and so I, I was just trying to narrow down who was she at the time of Paul. So that meant the historians that, that were helping vetting helping me bet my work, you know, help me figure out how do you solve for X? And the way you do that is you look at the literary evidence that is within the time of the earliest Christians approximately. You look at the inscriptions and you and you look at, you know, I mean you do look at Homer, you look at the the ancient stuff, but then you look at what remained by the time the Christians were there. And as it turns out, Ephesus is the natal city. It's, you know, I like to compare it to Jesus in Bethlehem. Like there's a pride of the city. I, I'm not saying Artemis is anything like Jesus. I'm just saying that the city had that pride of birthplace and there were annual celebrations and a deep identity with her there. And so I like to, I like to sort of liken it to uh, stereotypical Barbie and weird Barbie in that, <laughs> in that This is Artemis, a Barbie movie I know. reference. I'm sorry, scholars, but I'm, I have to make analogies. So, you know, you have Artemis is generic Artemis. She's still the same person. But in the city of Ephesus, she took on a, a local persona uh, that had a real emphasis on 
maybe a better analogy would be the Statue of Liberty. You know, she's in Paris, she's in New York Harbor, but only in one of those cities is she really connected with immigration. Mm. And so I, I was trying to narrow down who was Artemis to the earliest Christians. And what you see over and over is a a great emphasis, the number one emphasis is going to be on virginity. But then you're also going to see, you know, she's the hunter, she, she's the other things. If you've seen Wonder Woman, you, you know, you pick up some of those too. Um, but she actually wasn't necessarily a friend of women, like Wonder Woman is based on her, but uh, she killed as many women, maybe more women than men. Um, to, to drill down on that point a little bit more, so she's both a, a goddess of the midwife, uh, and also a swift killer of women and children, if I remember correctly. Right. How are those logically connected in their Yeah, role? well, if, if you think about the number one cause of death for women is childbirth. If you know anybody who's had a C-section or preeclampsia, she's dead. Like, there's no surviving that. And so that's going to be the number one fear of women. So Artemis's bow and arrow, while it can be used vindictively, it's also... Uh, people would ask her to, to kill them quickly and painlessly. And it's, there's a euthanizing element of that. And so it's either kill me quickly, not, not, not so much quick as painlessly uh, with your arrows or deliver me safely. Uh, so as, as the Homer story goes, you know, Homer is uh, promiscuous and he cheats on his wife uh, with Leto and Leto conceives twins, and nobody wants to let her have a you know birth near them because they're afraid of Zeus's wife Hera. So, but apparently she finds a friendly place near Ephesus and gives birth, and Artemis is born first, which I think we might be hearing echoes of in Adam was first. So Artemis is born first, and and watches her mother writhe for nine days, giving birth to Apollo. And basically, Artemis goes to Daddy Zeus and goes, I don't want anything to do with that. Like, make me immune to, to Aphrodite's arrows. And he says, granted. So that's the ancient story. But then you do see it repeated at the time of the earliest Christians. And you even, you even see a connection then to the birth event. So basically, I have, she has mercy on women in childbirth. And you see her referenced in a, a first century uh, description of why her first temple burned. Well, it's because a few centuries ago when Alexander the Great was being born, she couldn't be in two places at once, and she chose to officiate at his birth over being here to protect her temple. So again, you get that, that midwifery uh, connection. So you ask me, what's the connection? The arrows can euthanize, uh, and that's connected to the fear uh, that you'll be writhing for days before you finally expire. You seem at, at pains in the book in various places to, to say really clearly that Artemis is not anti-man. Mm. Yeah. He's not anti-man, right. um, or she's not anti-man. What, what is that doing in your argument? Why are you, why are you concerned to make sure that we know that she's not you know. Because I think in the past I've seen a lot of New Testament scholars try to make a case that Paul is for women, but they do it by saying there is an Artemis background, but it's because there's a man-hating. And again, the historians are like, through through the whole thing out. I think they should have kept Paul was friendly to women, but you know dug deeper to find out in what way. So they based it on an assumption that if Artemis is a 
female goddess, she must be pro-women, but the, the silver workers are men. And Artemis is the name of one of Paul's co-workers. I think it's Gift of Artemis that is mentioned in Titus. I found lots of names of men and women that are named for her. Parents are naming their boys as much as their girls after Artemis. So it's not like it was a girl power cult. Uh, it was, I, I liken it maybe to the Virgin Mary that, we, that those who love Mary aren't just women. Um, she's not a, a, a girl. Um, Again, bad analogy, but there are some similarities. A boy maybe. named Mary. <laughs> that famous Johnny Cash song. I think it was Sue, oh, but that's right. anyway, <laughs> that's a whole different oh, lecture. Uh, I was just going to real quick follow up. Are any of those New Testament scholars that make these wild claims in the room right now? If you are, raise your hand. <laughs> oh. Seeing none, we can move on. I'm sure they've met well. <laughs> so no. I, I suppose on that line, um, along those lines, how how did this become to be such an oft-repeated thing? And it, I mean, within contemporary scholarship, but this yeah. is actually a really old, old view of Artemis in some ways too that gets repeated. Yeah. Um, help, help us understand how she comes to be associated in like this Christian polemic sense with fertility, et cetera. I, I can tell you my hunch. So Jerome and one of the other, I can't, can't remember the other one, but one of the early apologists coming, you know, for a century, looking back, refers to Artemis of Ephesus as polymaston or many-breasted. And uh, the logic, I think, that flowed from reading him was, okay, Women have breasts. Breasts are used for mothering and nurturing. Therefore, Artemis must have been the mother nurturing goddess. That, that's the best I can tell of how that emerged. And, and it does keep pointing sort of the early Christian apologists who would have been removed by a couple centuries mm. from really knowing what, you know, what the actual uh, practices were as part of her cult. Mm. Should we talk about polymaston now? Yes. Or I love talking about breasts, Drew. <laughs> Let's talk about breasts, Drew Johnson. Uh, <laughs> Aaron is my favorite co-host to, uh, to interview with. Um, way better than Matt Lynch. Uh, I'm just going to read the question I have written down. Somebody wrote in my Word document, you argue convincingly that Artemis isn't actually breasty. <laughs> That's with a hyphen Y. Uh, why might those even a word? Well, it is now. <laughs> why might those bulbous accoutrements have been so prominent? Um, wow. Well, first of all, let's talk about some ways we know that those probably aren't breasts. First of all, if you look at some of the depictions of her in the statues. Uh, the hands are ebony, the face is ebony, the toes are ebony, but the rest of what she has on is marble. It's white. And so it looks like it's a breastplate or, or something that, that she takes on as opposed to her actual body. Um, Zeus also has them. So, you know, there's that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, so, I, you know, it doesn't matter that much to me, that, you know, what they mean. Um, and I think there are other ways to, to sort of prove that just even if they were breasts, that doesn't mean necessarily that Artemis is a mother goddess. Nevertheless, um, it, the, I think that uh, the scholarship now is really leaning toward 
a Hittite magic bag sort of connection. And what's interesting to me about that, that I've just, when I start, maybe 10 years ago, I didn't make the connection between magic and Artemis. I saw those as two different spiritual forces in Ephesus. And I'm, I, I found some inscriptions that connected the two, and it makes sense that Acts 19 would have included them both together. And uh, so anyway, uh, I, I think the evidence leans way far against breasts. It certainly leans against her being a nurturer uh, that we've concluded must necessarily flow from having a lot of breasts. Uh, they're missing some, shall we say, essential detail that is related to nurturing with breasts. Oh, come on, Sandra. So, Just know. say it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah she's, she doesn't have any nipples. And, okay. and the All Greeks right. the Greeks were into detail. Okay, so that, they look more like eggs or, uh, yeah, they look, they look more like eggs. It, it, it's, they've been described as bull testicles, and, the, you know, you could say they look that. But that theory has also been called misogynistic, looking for male power in a female image. So there's that. We'll just call them Hittite magic bags. I think that would be wait, safer. Wait, what? We, I need, what is a Hittite magic bag? I think just yeah. everyone needs to, like, we can't just let that, yeah. that be. This is okay, where I leaned in, in on the book. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure we know, but but first of all, what's interesting about Hittite is I think we've looked a lot at European solutions to try to figure out what that is. And, you know, this is Anatolia. And so, uh, interestingly enough, I was in Ephesus this summer, and I noticed that the new depictions of the temple look a lot more Asian than even they did when I was there 20 years ago. And it just shows that we're recognizing, you know, there were a lot of other influences beside Rome that were coming in here. So there's that, just the recognition that there's a big Hittite influence, you know, at, at the time. Um, but also, uh, Ephesus is magic central, and it's not supposed to be legal in the empire, but they kind of get a pass on it for a couple of different reasons. And uh, so anyway, the, the scholars that are looking at Hitt the Hittite connection, and the particular shape are just saying this really fits that narrative a lot better than any of the ones that we've been looking at. In classical art, obviously, like there's a huge difference between the classical Greek depiction of Artemis and yes. Yes. Artemis of the Ephesians. Mm -hmm. um, help us understand how those two relate to each other. Yeah. So if you if you've seen the copy of the book, uh, the, you know the cover of it has the what I like to call stereotypical Barbie. <laughs> She's the stereotypical Artemis, who is often a, a beautiful virgin hunter. Usually she has a short skirt on so she can hunt. Um, and then you have the, the uniquely Ephesian version, which has all those bulbous appendages. Say that really fast 20 times. Um, and But they're both the same goddess in that, like if you went to the temple at the time of the earliest Christians, you would see both of the statues there. It's just only one of those would be called Artemis of Ephesus. And you would see the Artemis of Ephesus version in Jordan, what we know as Jordan. I mean, you would see it all over the empire. Uh, and But it was a, that was the one that was identified with the city as opposed to the generic one that you would identify really anywhere. The, so speaking of statues, I thought it was interesting how you split up the literary evidence, the epigraphic. Thank uh -huh. you, epigraphic uh, evidence and statuary evidence. Inscriptions. Um, yeah, it, why why are do inscriptions and uh, epigraphy feature differently than just why don't we just read Homer and say, hey, he's the authority. Yeah, you nailed it. Exactly. Well, you know, Homer is many centuries back, so the question is. 
what has sifted down centuries later? What of the story are they still hanging on to? And what, have they, what are we just not seeing? And so that's why I read the ancient stories and there are different versions of it. Um, but, but then to, so to know that in the backdrop, but then to, re, to limit myself to the different sources in the first, first-ish centuries to see how much of that story was still being retold. Um, and where has the story been altered a little bit? And you know, so yeah, what have they hung on to and what have they maybe jettisoned? Um, and on that note, um, I guess why, why do inscriptions, I, I thought it was very interesting when you talked about the, the nature of inscriptions, and of course I'd never thought about that, that clearly before, but why are inscriptions such a powerful form of evidence? And then I have a follow-on method question. Okay, Sorry. okay, no problem. So I think inscriptions are incredibly understudied, underutilized in, in New Testament studies and, get, and getting a sense, all kinds of things. First of all, uh, I've heard an estimate by an inscriptions expert uh, who said that we have a half a million uh, samples of words that we have not incorporated into our lexicons. And that's awesome because, first of all, it's really hard to make scribal errors or adjustments to something written in stone. Second, you have a context for it. Uh, you have a, a place where it appears. And the Romans loved to write in stone. And that's awesome for us because the very period that we want to look at is, is preserved in a way that the pepper, I just, that, you know, we just don't have nearly the... I don't know, the endurance. Um, so it was really fun to look at, the, when I started with the inscriptions, I was expecting something like Lincoln's you know, second inaugural address, which is in the Lincoln Memorial, the beautiful prose of the culture. There was very little of that. There was a lot of Susie loves Joey. Uh, there was a lot of, honey, here's my shopping list and I'm using a piece of potsherd to, you know. Uh, but also we see lots and lots of lists of names that, it's given us clues as to immigration, if you're seeing what countries maybe, and you know, languages are showing up. Again, these many forms of the name of Artemis for men and women tell us it's so prevalent, the, the names that are uh, adapted from Artemis, it tells you how much she's revered in the culture, really second only to Zeus. Uh, just, just very influential, and, and particularly at Ephesus. I didn't even find any, any inscriptions of Apollo. It's like he can have Delos, this is my city. Um, and the follow-on is, I'm, you're creating a large web argument where you're pulling in lots of data, um, and you organize it very clearly and very well for the reader. And um, I, I'm wondering, did you model this method off of somebody? Because I haven't encountered a lot of New Testament no. scholarship where they're pulling this net together like you did. So when I went to get my P, to do my PhD work, and I was very interested in doing this, I didn't know at all where the data was going to lead. I, I was basically, God, I'll hop on crutches for the rest of my life as a woman if that's what you want. I don't have to understand it. I just got to know. What are the boundaries? What am, what am I stewarding? And what am I pushing boundaries about? And so, but that's a really, actually, as it turns out, kind of a fun way to solve a crime. <laughs> you, you just don't know where the evidence is going to lead. And um, so I, and I did an aesthetic studies uh, PhD, which is a third history, which in my case was Ephesus, you know, in the two centuries, uh, two first centuries. And then I did art, which required me to 
uh, find all the books I could that were fiction that were set in the Roman Empire at approximately the first century and to see how people were telling the stories. And then I had to do part philosophy, which was not traditional philosophy, but was uh, the history of ideas. So I chose gender to look at history of ideas about about gender from the time of Paul on and what do they consider masculine and feminine. And so it was historians who said to me, you know, the host historians that are vetting my work saying, in order to, to just limit this to the first century, how can we narrow it down to the first century? And we need to do it systematically. So what are words they use or what are your tools of analysis? And I said, well, you know, the inscriptions and the papyri and the statuary and the, you know, the coins. And they're like, okay, those are your chapters. Mm. That's simple. <laughs> uh, it's brilliant. Yeah. I, and you said it's like uh, a crime uh, Crime novel. I, I, I've been it. describing it as a crime novel, a whodunit. Oh, I love it. All the evidence is being laid out systematically in the final chapter, which we will not spoil, uh, is gathered. <laughs> I spoiled it in the title. Well, like, <laughs> she is not a fertility goddess. Yeah. But, yeah, the final bit pulls it all together and mm. says, like, let's read Paul again. It was brilliant. I, I thought it was Thank a brilliant me methodology good. and innovative, Thank and I you. hope more New Testament scholars, all you who are listening, should do more of the same. Oh can, yeah. can we go back to the inscriptions? Because yeah. I, I developed I a deep love of inscriptions um, when I was a research student. And they're actually, I mean, it, it's um, a, rich, a research um, assistant for Paul Trebilco. And it's actually, it's not a very accessible thing to learn how to research inscriptions. Um, so I think one of my questions is the book question. So what do we find associated, or how is Artemis associated with inscriptions? Where are these inscriptions located? What kinds of, you know, what kinds of people are associated with Artemis in the inscriptions? And then can you just give a brief summary of how do you begin to do inscription research? Where, what, what are the sources that New Testament scholars need to look at and they aren't looking at? Uh, that was great, but it was in two parts, I and I can sorry. only do one at a time. Okay. What's the first one? Okay, let's do the first one first. <laughs> okay. Where do you look sorry. for inscriptions? Where do you look for them? Okay, yeah. well, again, when I started, I didn't know. And, you know, sometimes you look in garbage dumps. <laughs> sometimes you're looking on, on the walls. Uh, you know, so you have a, a city or a world where... If you need a new gymnasium built, you look for a rich person. You don't go and get a municipal bond. And, but then they expect their name on it. So then you find inscriptions on every single thing that's built, and that gives you a sense of the wealth. Um, and mm -hmm. sometimes they would dedicate it to Artemis. So you'd find out that they were trying to you know, gain favor with the god. I would find it on curses. There was, there was one curse. It was like, this is my tombstone, and you're cursed. Artemis will curse you if you piss here. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, London they could has be, that problem today. They, they ranged from very eloquent to very base, uh, and connections to magic. It was really pretty much everything in everyday life. But even more practically, where is that published? Where is how that, do you oh, okay? How yeah. do you begin to? That was your second question. Yeah, I mean, just yeah. How, yeah. Where do you where do you find that? So if I had data. started 20 years earlier, I would have had to live in Ephesus. But uh, I, I actually was, at, I, I didn't know 
that you could find them online. They're not translated. But I didn't. E I went all the way through seminary uh, with a THM and did not even know they existed online. And it took uh, being in a, a secular program where they're like, "Oh yeah, they're they're online. Uh, you just have to do your own translation." And so that w I was thrilled. Uh, so then, and they were searchable like a concordance. So I could do, you know, Artemidas. I could do all the forms of her name, and sit in my jammies in my living room. And you know, and I might have to translate it. You know, that took me a couple of years. Um, and that wasn't necessarily in my Koine Greek dictionary. So uh, that, that was a challenge. But uh, in the last year, maybe, maybe nine months before I turned my manuscript in, someone released all the inscriptions uh, about women <laughs> in the Roman Empire. And it took me about an hour and a half to read the Ephesus section, which had taken me literally years to translate, but I wasn't mad. I mean, I was really glad because it was, then I could check my work. I could validate it. And, and also it was fun to kind of just sit in one place and see it. So it's, mu it's getting more and more accessible. And I hope lots of folks here will help make it even more accessible. Um, so turning to Paul, and again, I don't, I don't want to give away all the goods of the book because it is, it's a murder mystery, hmm. uh, murdering some caricatures about Artemis. Um, and but when you do turn to Paul, you do have a, 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 I'll talk method, a discussion of universal versus local uh, description. How did you carve up those two ways of Paul's speaking, and mm. what were your criteria mm. for helping you guide your thinking on that? Yeah, I think, I think that as, as in my tradition, most of the time when I am taught pastoral epistles, pe people often say, Paul says to us, blah, 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 as it's true indirectly, but we forget this is a very personal letter. And he's writing to somebody who's already gonna know his vocabulary because they've been working together for a long time in this city. And honestly, I think he throws a lot of shade on Artemis in the letter that somebody asked me, well, why doesn't Paul just mention Artemis? I'm like, he's a good Jew. You will never see Paul mention the name of another God. Now Luke, he'll mention him. But you never see that in Paul, but he doesn't need to. It's sort of like me saying kryptonite and going, you know what I'm talking about? You do, don't you? <laughs> right? It, Superman. Uh, so he uses some of the vocab. Um, and, but your question has to do with how did I separate universal and individual? I think all of that is related because I think the fact that Paul is writing a personal letter, uh, so it's just the genre to begin with. And then second, when I read, I think Paul used the outline of Genesis, but I think he was using the content of, of Ephesus because he said, I, I told you to teach certain people not to teach false doctrine. And I don't think it was just men that were teaching false doctrine. I think it was men and women. And sometimes it gets, that gets translated to certain men, false you know, shouldn't teach false doctrine, but it, it's people. Um, and so the other thing that I think um, really shows it to be a, a local situation uh, is this, this is a faithful saying, and I think that has all the marks of borrowing a local saying and then giving it a Christian spin that he has a habit of doing. Um, and I, I don't see anything that he's borrowing from the biblical text that says a woman will be saved through childbearing. 
Um, but there's a whole lot in the city of Ephesus that would have said that. I never found that actual saying. I actually set out thinking I would. I didn't realize how much of inscriptions was, was going to really just be garbage dump and names of lists. Um, and that very little actual poetry of a culture shows up. But other wonderful things are, are in the inscriptions, though. Is Twitter the garbage dump of modern American? <laughs> I love Twitter. I've I've met some of you on Twitter. Aww. I haven't. I'm I'm a holdout. I, I like it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, everything is a garbage dump. The newspaper, the the news, everything has the potential to be a garbage dump. Right. Wow. That's why we're called. Are to we really not going to talk about the end of the book? I I mean. You can. Like. What I I don't feel like I agreed to that. Uh, Sandra, millions of people are going to hear this, and they're not going to buy the book. Yeah, I mean, no, I want to ask the question. Okay, go ahead. Sandra, how does this help us read First Timothy two? Okay, like, surely that's the surely question. I'll go there, yeah, Drew. So, <laughs> thank you for stop yeah. calling me Shirley. <laughs> so, in a world in which Artemis is first. Anybody here like a, a we're, we're doing this live, right? So you got a twin. The first question people ask you is who's first? Who cares? But yet people still ask you that. And, uh, you know, so in Artemis's city, she's the firstborn. And Protoss, is, the first throne is one of her names. And so, but, and so that's the Artemis story. But the other origin story is, well, actually, Adam was first. I don't think that means in hierarchy. I don't think it means he's better. I think he's correcting a local myth with the Genesis myth. And actually, it was the woman who was deceived. And again, not because woman is the prototype of deception, but because you're, you're thinking she's pretty awesome and I, maybe too awesome. And I think Paul is equalizing. I don't think he's putting women down. I think he's actually bringing them down to equality with men. But, um, and, and so he's limiting the teachers. I don't think it's for all time. I think the fact, you know, much is made of the of the present tense. I don't know that that that's as as persuasive when you just look at Paul's, you know, saying I I am not permitting. But when you add it with I am not permitting, that's that's first person, and that says that's his practice. And you don't see him saying one should not permit or it should not be done. Um, and so you do have false doctrine in the city. You have Acts 19 telling you what the, the doctrine probably is. It, it matches the, the idea of her, her being first and, and uh, the lies that are coming out of Artemis. I just think it, it fits Paul uh, being concerned for false doctrine, but then he gives a consolation. Basically, I think he's saying Jesus is better. That, that you're not. I think he's saying those women are not going to die in childbirth. I don't think he's saying that for everybody. But if you look at Acts 19, what's the biggest defense against magic? It's Paul is like touching aprons and kerchiefs and people are getting healed and the magic workers are going, well, let's burn our books. And I think this is the parallel to the, the Artemis uh, midwifery thing. Uh, the, the sign that God is here and that Jesus is better and God is stronger is in the shadow of the virgin goddess who delivers, Jesus is going to deliver. This is a fable thing. And I, I just want to follow up on that because okay. one of the better thing, I mean, one of the more touching parts of the book, I think, is you taking us into this space where women 
Uh, I mean, are are pregnant and also mm-hmm. in, incredibly vulnerable. So help us understand how this might speak to, I mean, women who are Christ followers this in is, this moment. Yeah, that's a great question. This is going to be where the rubber meets the road for a new believer who's a Gentile woman. Because in the past, her salvation, her fear is is all resting in Artemis. And not just for her, because if you hack off the God in a communal setting, the God might come down on the whole city. So your parent, your friends are going to be going, why do you hate us? You know, just go make your offering. There's already that pressure. But then she has to really believe that Jesus can save her uh, when she gets ready to deliver to not go and hedge her bets down at the temple to not go hedge her bets in prayer to Artemis. This is where the rubber meets the road, and I think Paul has gone after the biggest fear that women have, the biggest test of their faith, and he's saying Jesus is better. I, I, for me, that part rang. That's when I was like, ah, Paul is a Hebrew. Uh, and he, and he yeah. speaks prophetically, uh, you know, the very, the hedging your bets, right? To go down to Baal yeah. uh, to, or, or Dagon or Chemosh. Um, he's saying the same thing, but he's turning to the women and saying it to you in this, like, the most tender moment. Even today, mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like many women fear at this moment in their life. Like, this is a very scary, uh, liminal moment for them. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I thought that was brilliant. I should also say to you, when you read it, you will see this section of the book, I really appreciated how you slowed down mm-hmm. and went phrase by phrase. So everything that she just said so quickly, there is long exegetical examination of each phrase that Paul uses in that whole little pericope there. And it, mm-hmm. I thought that was um, very helpful that you took your time and, and hand walked people like me through it so I yeah. could nod along with Thank you. Thank you, yeah. that's really kind. Um, should we turn to the speed round now Absolutely. that we've ruined the book? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Since we've spoiled the we've end. We've given you a taste of the excellent exegesis yeah. at the end of the book that makes... Yeah. Yeah. I, There's much more feasting to be had um, in this book. Um, I, so you, uh, you let on that you're a fan of The Office. So I actually, am. this was going to be true. my first question. Okay. It's, it's a question that... Michael Gary Scott asked Toby in their uh, performance <laughs> evaluation. Okay. Who do you think you, who do you think you are? Oh, I want to be CJ, <laughs> but I think I am probably the president's daughter. <laughs> Wait, who? I know, right? <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh, I, I don't oh, know. Oh, yeah, I, see? I oh, you're right. That was the West Wing. Yeah, you're right. Very good. Well, that was West yeah. Wing was for West the viewers Wing. at home. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a fan of the West Wing. Let's just be clear. I'm a fan of the West Wing. Are we clear on that? <laughs> right? That's what I'm a fan of. So we speak faster right. and with clever things to say? <laughs> oh, okay. I, there's no way that's going to happen. I mean, I'm, I'm struggling with just the speed round speed of the speed oh, round. Okay, here we go. It's back to uh, you, Aaron. <laughs> right. right. Um, do you have any irrational fears? Snakes. <laughs> No, that's not irrational. That's Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Sometimes I think they might be under my bed. Okay, that's irrational. On the second floor. Yeah. Um, what is the, uh, one of the most awkward things that's ever happened to you? Wait, in... I'm the only one answering you? Yes, oh, why would we answer yeah. this? Oh, okay. Aaron and I have both been guests on Odds. Okay, so, okay, yeah. okay. I didn't have a speed round in my episode. Okay. All right. I didn't ask you a speed no, round. No, you didn't. No. Oh. 
right. It's fine. Okay. Anyway, we don't need to right. do yeah, that. So what is one of the most, <laughs> one of the most awkward, you can list multiple, but uh, most awkward things that's happened to you in the classroom? <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I fell down the steps in 20, 2005 and had a surgery that frayed some of the edges of my memory that affected only names, and it made me, I, I kid you not, it made me, like, if somebody's name was either Jason or Kevin, like, if it had the same number of syllables, mm -hmm. it wasn't if it sounded like it was the number of syllables. Try explaining that to a student. It's like, yeah, right, Dr. G, uh-huh, right. You can't get my name right, but it's about the syllables. Yeah. I just, I, yeah, I was awkward. Repeatedly awkward. What is one thing you wish, or what, what is one thing you wish all of your students knew? I wish my students knew how much their professors really deeply love them. That uh, we, it hurts us when they fail. We, we take it personally like, okay, I need to up my game on teaching and, and how much we are for them. Mm. Uh, this one's for Matt Bates. Uh, do you believe in aliens? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Extraterrestrial aliens, I, I should do specify. Not. I do not, no. Why not? I believe in the Northern Lights. <laughs> oh, I, I think they're. Have you ever seen the Northern Lights? No, it's on my bucket list. Okay. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I've seen them. They're not real. Um, <laughs> you believe in aliens, right? <laughs> no, I do oh, not. Okay. Okay. No, I'm with you. I'm with okay. you. What food tastes like home? Oh, what food tastes like home is definitely going to be boysenberry pie. I'm a fifth generation Oregonian and I like pie more than cake. And I, my birthday's the day after Christmas and my mom always made sure that I got a boysenberry pie on my birthday. Hmm. I don't know. Not huckleberry. No. Okay. No. Um, what is one of the things when you come to SBL or ETS or IBR or ASOR or whatever, uh, that you um, dread? <laughs> 5.30 a.m. Mm. Every single day. Why are we doing so many breakfast meetings? <laughs> wow. Amen. I wow. Yeah, preach. publishers. Yep. That's, yeah. <laughs> if you could be any animal, what oh. would you be? Oh, I would be a collie, for sure. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> What's not to love about that? Right? I don't have any more speed round questions. I feel like it's dangerous to make them up on the spot for me right now. So. Oh, that's, that's oh, fun. Um, I think wait, wait, wait. We did ask the one we always ask. What's the most important oh, yeah. book in theology or biblical studies that's been published in the last 50 years? Oh, yeah. Fair. Oh, oh gosh. I was going to say The Brothers K, but that's older than that. <laughs> <laughs> Nonfiction. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. That might be a tall order for some of us. <laughs> oh, wow. To write. <laughs> you know, well, for me, it's actually Paul Trabilko's book. But again, it's a very thin slice of... It's a thin slice of my work, but his fat book on Christians uh, from... In Ephesus from... Paul to Ignatius, yeah, right? There you go. Yeah. He'd be upset. Matt, there's another Paul Trevilco student. Sorry. I was Paul Trevilco student. We got him one more in the in the audience, and okay. Matt would be better with titles than I. Am. It's a long title and a big fat book, yes. but I, I think it's it's just such a great model of method. It communicates 
a good spirit of scholarship. It's rigorous academically. It was it was a real model for me in in my work. Mm -hmm. So I can't speak to the much more broad. Uh, I I can only kind of speak to the little hole that I've been living in. Yeah. I just now realize that I've been pronouncing Paul Treblinko in my head <laughs> for all of these years. So. Well, Dr. Sandra Glong, <laughs> thank you so much for being on script and being such a congenial guest. Can we give her a round of thank applause? You. you have been listening to On Script, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.